Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Who does everybody forget, Gary, at Gallipoli? Who does everybody forget? Including us sometimes. I forgot. The French. The, the French. French, were they there? <laughs> they were there as much as anybody else was, yeah? And, do you know, in some ways they were the most efficient military force there. They probably killed more Turks than we did. Um, they do brilliantly. And we've been to that. You've been. You remember. You remember the... Oh! Oh! I remember the French sector. The Sangers. Don't, they're still there. Yeah. The, the horrific, horrific cliff face that we, that we had to climb out. Uh, I, sorry, I'm not. I'm not putting anybody off with that, am I? And of course, the French guns that are still there. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so, so this is a. a it, it's a tribute to the French and the part they played, and uh, it's a heartfelt, and Gary felt, and Norton felt. <laughs> Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Celebrations now, come on. Why am I so happy? Why could I be so happy? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because my book, The Gallipoli Evacuation, is now available to buy. Hooray! Forget all that and pre-ordering. Forget all that. You can actually buy it. You can buy it all over the world through the wonders of the internet. You can pay it in a wide range of currencies and all you have to do is go to our website which is livinghistorytv.com livinghistorytv.com You know it makes sense. Buy today. A Living History Production I'm Peter Hart, and for the last 40 years, I've interviewed thousands of veterans about their experience of war. Join me on a journey through the pages of history. Welcome to Peter Hart's Military History. Hello, and welcome to Peter Hart's Military History Podcast. And I'm here today at the lovely, lovely bijou home of uh, Gary Bain. Is this your second, third or fourth home, Gary? Well, actually, it's my only home, Peter, because I'm a poor pensioner. Oh, you used to be so rich. And I used to be so handsome too, but these things are fleeting, Peter. They erode, don't they? Yes. You've eroded nearly I've right eroded. away. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to be in a good mood. The, the I am in there. a good mood. I am in a good Although it is a bit hot and sweaty You're not going to sing again, though, no, are you? No singing. That I sound. shall not sing. Oh. Oh, well, uh, what are we do today, Gary? Give us, a, give us an inkling of what we're going to babble on about. Well, it's another Gallipoli podcast, Peter, but this time with a difference. We're talking about the French at Gallipoli. No, no, the French weren't at Gallipoli, Gary, were they? Well, that, that's a good point, actually. They, you know, 
many people do not realise that there was a French uh, contingent at Gallipoli, and quite a sizable one, I believe, over 40,000 at one stage. Yeah. Yeah, people know about the Anzacs, people know about the, you know, there were some Brits probably up the road at Suvla, large contingent of French from day one. And it's not just uh, sort of the, the uh, Australians and New Zealanders that forget about uh, the French contingent, the British. I remember I write in my book, Defeated Gallipoli, and barely mentioned the French, uh, so we also are culpable. And there is one other country. That France. Does, yeah. You know, France forgets about the French. They're, Mind you, you would if you were French. You'd want to forget. <laughs> they've, got, they've got a lot of fight. They have done a fair amount of fighting over the years, I think. Uh, Mainly uh, against us. Now, um, so, so, so let, I, I, just to, so, but this is unfair because there is a point of view, which I, I probably hold, that given their, their, their artillery, they had a proper amount of artillery for their forces there, their 40,000 troops, and they also had ammunition, which is very different from the British situation, isn't it, who didn't have enough guns and, uh, well, why do you need ammunition? If you've got the guns, surely that'll frighten the Turks. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned on previous podcasts, but this 1915 was at the height of the uh, the shell shortage on the Western Front. So uh, that overspilt into Gallipoli as well. And the French, you know, the French have a history of, of being well prepared and having good logistics. Same in the Crimea. You know, the British were very underprepared and very jealous of the French system of supply. And uh, I've put that in for our good friend, Mr. Thompson, Mr. Rob Thompson. Uh, not Mr. James Thompson, because he won't be listening. Bastard, James Thompson. Utter, utter bastard. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, and so there is an argument for saying that the French were the most uh, militarily effective force in Gallipoli, because they, they, they could smash you up quite easily. Uh, anyway, uh, so how did the French get to be involved? Well, <laughs> the, the, the main reason the French get involved is their rivalry with the British. I think you could put it... Uh, they, they are busy on the Western Front. Uh, the most important part of France, the industrial part, was uh, invaded. The, the Germans were like an arrow pointing at Paris, uh, the capital of France. That was their main concern. But they still kept a close eye on what the British were up to in the Middle East. Uh, do, do the French naturally trust the British, do you think? No, and I think it's fair to say that they were keeping an eye for the post-war period. They were worried about British expansion in the, in the Middle Eastern area. So when uh, so when Churchill drags, it's essentially Churchill who the cabinet failed to control or stop. So it's a, a, a blame that is shared, in my view, across the cabinet. When when Churchill drags uh, Britain into the ill-conceived, firstly the Dardanelles naval operations and then the Gallipoli campaign, uh, the French are particularly concerned with Syria. That is, they regard that as being in their sphere of influence. That is theirs. They have got their beady eyes on it. That is going to be a French colony as far as they're concerned. And so they want to keep in step. Now, uh, this is uh, the French naval minister, Victor Orgagneur. Are you going to do this in a French accent? Yes, you are. Yeah, I'm going to do this in a French accent. Here we go, Gary. Not to take part in the operation would have been, in case it succeeded, to witness the appearance of the English fleet alone before Constantinople. For us French, who are deeply involved in the Orient, it would have been a very painful renunciation of our national pride and perilous for our interests. Perilous for our interests. Their interests in the Ottoman Empire. That, 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 that's what they're on about. Now, rather interestingly, Pete, I, I had a question I wrote on, on the notes here. So how, how did they decide that the lead would be the British in this joint venture? 
It's so unlike the French. Well, it is strange because uh, the, 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 the agreement, the Entente Cordiale, had specifically stated that the French would be in charge of naval forces in the Mediterranean. But they, they forego that. Uh, once, uh, I think they spot it might be expensive undertaking in ships or whatever. Uh, uh, international politics is not my field of interest. But is it not? It, it, is, it is interesting that they, they do stand aside because it's not a French trait standing aside. No. When there's national pride and things. no, and if it's, he it's, mentions national pride, it's about their national interest. So I, I was intrigued because there doesn't seem to be a lot of bickering and arguing about it. They just let the British lead. Now the first uh, experimental, the, the, there is a, a a Mediterranean fleet put together, British and French, mainly uh, pre-dreadnoughts, and they bombard them first of all way back in early November 1914. The French take a part in that, uh, and then they start proper operations to try and force the Dardanelles by naval power. This is what Churchill had assured everyone was possible on the 19th of February 1915. Uh, this, is, uh, this, this, this is under the command of uh, Carden, Admiral Carden, and the idea was there'd be a series. They, they, <laughs> it's a brilliant plan. First they'd deal with the outer forts, then the inner forts, and the, then the next forts. Now, um, um, what happens? Well, it's always the same. The forts seem to be subdued, and then what happens, Gary? What do you think happens to those forts? Well, they start firing back, I would have thought, after a, a, yeah. a period. so they go quiet, and then they start again. And didn't the British, or sorry, the Allies in, in this case, suggest that uh, it was because the forts were running out of ammunition? Later on, they do. That's that, that, They're always, that, that's after their real attempt to force it. Yeah, they're, they're, they've always got a reason. But in fact, the, the, the Turks just don't fire unless there's a, a, something dangerous happening. Uh, there's no point. Um, the, the, the attempt to force an arrow is on the 18th of March, 1915. This is probably, in my my view, the only serious chance of success, I would say about one in four, uh, probably less than that. Uh, the, and it's a classic British flat plan. I love it as a plan because the British seem to be doing dangerous work, but in fact they're not. So they divide the, sh the, the, the fleet into three lines. The first line, the mo most modern British ships, including the Queen Elizabeth, uh, they go first in line A, Gary, line A. Guess what line the next line's called? In French, B. Line B. <laughs> yes, and that would be so. Once the British forces had subdued the 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 the, the, uh, the Turkish forces, or seemed to, to, they would move in and go closer. <laughs> Under <laughs> and, the guns, by any chance? Right up to as close as eight thousand yards, and 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 finish them off. And then the third line was really uh, older British pre-dreadnoughts that would sort of fill in gaps in the line, that kind of thing. Now, unfortunately for for the, uh, Carden and the Allies and De Roebuck, uh, Carden had gone home by then. Sorry, I do apologise. Carden had been ill and gone home. De Roebuck was now John De Roebuck was now in charge um, and uh, unfortunately for De Roebuck uh, the mine layer the Nusrat had stolen out and laid a line of mines across Erinquy Bay which was uh, 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 lengthways uh, instead of across the straits and they put that there because they'd seen the allied ships the French and British pre-dreadnoughts maneuvering about in Erinquy Bay very very clever 
Anyway, um, the British Line A advances in and, uh, and they're, they're pestered by howitzers hiding behind their fold in the hills. You've been in some of those hills with me on, uh, Killy, uh, up, up there. Um, they, um, they're under fire, but the fort seemed to stop firing it. And at, uh, just after 12, de Roebuck orders in the French Line B. And a French, guess what happens as the French Line B moves forward? Can you imagine, Gary, what happens? Well, I should imagine they come under fire. Heavy, heavy fire. Because as they get closer and closer, they're, of course, more of a threat to the Turks, so therefore the forts really open up. Now, this is able seaman Daniel Sem, who was aboard HMS Prince George, and he was watching as the French ships go forward. Let rip. Well, before I start, I'd like to, to actually Ooh. name the French ships. I think that we should. Yes. Um, so Line B consisted of the Souffron, the Bouvet, the Galois and the Charlemagne. How did you remember that? You've put them in the notes. Oh. <laughs> but I think we should mention yes. them by name. Yeah, thank you, Gary. And, and uh, yes, that's absolutely spot on. So Abel Seaman Daniel Sem uh, of HMS Prince George says, I say, hats off to the Frenchmen. Two of their ships now passed up the lines and took up a position ahead of our ships over on the Asiatic side in a direct line with the Dardanus fort close to Chinak, modern-day Chinakale. If anyone went over into hell, these two French cruisers did. At times, it was impossible to see them for the spray that was thrown up by the shells falling all around them. The fort was firing like hell. Now, uh, he says cruisers, they're, they're pre-dreadnoughts. Now, uh, the Suffren, that's the, uh, the, the flagship of the, uh, the Admiral, uh, the French Admiral. It was hit by a, a heavy shell. Now, uh, who am I going to be, Gary? Uh, you're going to be Rear Admiral Emile Guaprat. Oh, I was hoping for of a bit. The Suffren. And, and we've recently had a, 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 a podcast, not podcast, a, a, a Zoom meeting with a Rear Admiral, haven't we? We have, uh, but we're not going to name him, but Jeremy Larkin, and he was lovely. Uh, now, here we go. Uh, this is what uh, Guprati says. Uh, in a few minutes, the flagship was... Oh, in a few minutes, the flagship was hit by a large number of heavy shells, one of which caused major damage. A casemate and a, a turret were knocked out of action, and all of the crew were killed and incinerated. There was an escape of flame and burning gases into the port magazine. It was flooded to save the ship from the threat of explosion. And then I'll have to go serious. Uh, I went straight down. The scene was tragically macabre. The image of desolation, the flames spared nothing. As for our young men, a few minutes ago, so alert, so self-confident, all now lying dead on the bare deck, blackened, burnt skeletons, twisted in all directions, no trace of any clothing, the fire having devoured all. That, I think, the way I read that quote is how sometimes I feel about military history. You can have a laugh and then suddenly all the laughter stops. And uh, it, it, I don't know how horrible that was, but that's a, a nasty description. And that's what naval actions like. But it gets worse because at 1400, the Bouvet is hit by a heavy shell by reports. And then in the Allied opinion, it runs onto a mine as well. The Turks don't agree with that, but that's another matter. Now, you're going to be Seaman Saveur Pyro. Uh, Pyro, whatever those names. Uh, Gary, tell us what happened to the Bouvet. The boat immediately listed to starboard. I was completely covered in the coal dust which came from the bunkers. I went to the signal ladder and with the second mate we climbed up. From the bridge I got myself onto the tunnel. 
sorry, funnel, <laughs> which was entering the water. Then I climbed onto the hull. I believe that the second mate was trapped and he fell into a hatchway. From the keel, I threw myself into the water. I couldn't rise to the surface because of the tug of the water. I couldn't breathe. Blood was coming out of my mouth and my ears. When I was on the surface again, if I hadn't found this piece of wood, I would have been a goner. I managed to get one of the hammocks and got it between my knees. I saw another chap crying out to me to save him and I told him to come closer to me so that he could be on one end of the plank and me on the other. But when the English came to fish us out of the water, I saw that both his legs had been cut off. Not nice, is it? Uh, now, the thing about the bouvet, this is what happens in naval warfare. If something goes wrong, it goes wrong very quickly. And uh, it's often fatal for almost everyone. Uh, the bouvet took with her in that. It sank in about two minutes, Gary. Two and a half minutes. Uh, it took with it Captain Rago de la Touche and 638 of his crew. We've seen the memorial to uh, uh, de, de la Touche on the uh, French, uh, the French, um, what's that thing called? Um, well, it's a, French, a memorial. It's a French memorial, yeah. yeah. <laughs> ah, stupid uh, me. Um... Now, there were two more British pre-dreadnoughts, uh, the Irresistibly Ocean uh, Sink, uh, hit by Myrton Sink, and De Roebuck orders a recall, they give up. Now, at this point, this has been watched by the designated commander of the MEF, uh, Middle Eastern Expeditionary Force, General Sir Ian Hamilton. He'd arrived on the 17th of March, and he was going to command the, the, the sort of makeshift army. This was originally intended just to occupy the forts after the fleet had passed through, but now they're going to have to make uh, a landing. The French, they weren't overly keen to get embroiled in a land campaign, uh, but what do you think they thought? Are they still... Well, they've, they've still got the same concerns and, and suspicions as the British. They're going to want to keep an eye on what the British are doing. So they put together another force. <laughs> they've got the... They must have been going, Jesus wept. But they, they put together a new force, and it's called uh, the Corps Expedition Dorian. Uh, it's uh, the CEO, we'll probably call it, to save a, a bit of time. And the first division was the first thing that they sent out. Uh, this was gathered up from the depots in France and North Africa. The first is the Metropolitan Brigade, which is the French 175th Regiment. Uh, that's a French regiment, if you know what I mean. And the first regiment de marche uh, d'Afrique, which are African troops uh, recruited in Africa, obviously. Sorry. And then the Colonial Brigade, which is the fourth Regiment Mixed Colonial and the 6th Regiment Mixed Colonial. It was a mixture of French, Senegalese, Foreign Legion and Zouave. Which, kind. if you go to the uh, memorial that you mentioned, the French memorial, you can see that. It's a, it's a very diverse group uh, and you can see that in the memorials and in the, uh, in the markers, the grave markers. It's cosmopolitan, isn't it? It's built up of a lot of different countries. Uh, I think it was... A good force, the CEO. It's well-trained troops. Uh, they're, they're used to tough soldiering, uh, privations. And, and they had a, you, most of all, they had a, we've mentioned it before, they had all the guns you'd expect in a division. Not like ours. The Royal Naval Division had no guns at all. Uh, the other divisions were short of guns or guns that were t TA, territorial guns and, and territorial force guns and not that good at all. Uh, it, it, I think I'd almost equate it with the 29th Division as regards military efficiency because the 29th Division wasn't really a division. It was scraped up, rammed together and they never operated or trained as a division. The French were more, better efficient. Uh, who was in command, uh, Gary? Well, it, it, it had a good commander. It had General Albert Dalmade. 
That name seems familiar. Yeah, he'd been working with the British uh, during the 1914 operations on the Western Front and I think featured in, a, again, a previous podcast that we did, the French in 1914. He was on the left at, uh, at Le Cateau, I think. Uh, yeah. He was, uh, now, and a good commander. Yes, uh, solid, solid. Yeah. Not not uh, not brilliant, but solid. The British liked him, which is <laughs> probably important, as he was going to be subordinate to Hamilton. Now, uh, when the, the, so this French division, they come out via Malta, and there's a wonderful description by Sergeant Darno Pomero, who was third one seven fifth. Uh, and you're going to read this. And um... the English cheered us. Frenzied hurrahs were exchanged by both sides. Hurrah! The Marseillaise was sung by the English. We replied with God save the King. The two hymns are frenetically applauded by one and all. A trumpet sounds. It's applauded. Their numerous trumpets and bass drums make an incomprehensible noise, which we applauded anyway. I love that. That's good spirited. But it's nice to see the French and the British getting on. Uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's nice. Um, they push on, they get to Mudros on the 11th of March. That's uh, an island uh, about 60 miles from Gallipoli. Uh, and, and Mudros Bay <clears throat> is a natural harbour. They, they, they do have to go to Alex to sort themselves out, but uh, they, 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 that's where they, they're based for the, for the next bit. Now, right at the start, it had been decided that they wouldn't land on the Asiatic start of the side of the Straits. Kitchener had told Hamilton he was, it was too big, too, too big, just too big. Asia is too big, too many troops... They were to land on the other side. However, the main landings were going to be made at Hellas Peninsula. Look at your map. Uh, we'll put a map up for. And it was decided, <laughs> dangerous or not, they'd land a French force at Kamkali, uh, which would protect the back from the Turkish batteries uh, that were on the Asiatic side, who could otherwise fire straight into the back of the, the British at, say, V Beach, W Beach, and as they advanced up in the first day to Achibaba. So to save them the trouble in that first day during the advance to Achibaba, they, the French would be thrown in at Kumkali. Uh, and they'd also launch a diversion at Bazika Bay. These two French operations are also, of course, in, to, to confuse the Turkish commander, Liman von Saunders. So that's what's happening. Um, who are facing the French um, at Kumkali? Well, I think they have the most dangerous task of all. They're facing the Turkish 15th Corps, commanded by General Weber Pasha. And, and, and his, the concept was the usual. Uh, can you describe how the Turks defend things, Gary? Well, they put up uh, a weak screen to sort of just be a, an embuggerance, for want of a better word. To, oh, it's very technical, but yes. Uh, to abstract any any invaders. And the main force, which was the 3rd and 11th Divisions, would counterattack at night. Very, very typical of the Turkish defence. So defense. try and, like at, like at Hell, isn't it? And hold you up, slow you up. Embugger you, what a technical term that is. And then uh, when it's night and the, gun, the naval guns can't get you, smash you, throw you off. Yeah. Um, but here, uh, there's a battalion at Hellas, the whole of Hellas is one battalion. Uh, say three more can come up during the night. Uh, at uh, Anzac, there's uh, one company and uh, a division, best part of a division can come up during the night, uh, during the day and the night. But here, the French... They've got three battalions very close, just the other side of the Mandere River. We've seen the Mandere River. We remember going across that Ratley Bridge yep. to the cemetery, and that cemetery will, you know, crops up. And uh, th there's three battalions there, and just a couple of miles back, further back from there, were, were two whole Turkish regiments, i.e., six more 
battalions. This is a lot. Now, the French were just landing the 6th Colonial Regiment, three battalions of the 1st Division, and they'd land but next to the old demolished fort and Kumkali village. Kumkali village, is, if you look at a modern map, Kumkali village is now moved. Uh, it's not where the fort was anymore. No, and we've visited the fort. Uh, and no, in, in fact, Kumkali. Yeah, you can't get into the fort. We, no. you, they won't allow you But we you went in. to the new village because that's where those old guns yeah. are that we like. Yeah, yeah, that's and true. At. Yeah, we did do that. We like them guns. Now, they, they have lots of problems with landing. They're, they're, there's, the strong current gets in their way. There's delays, this, that and the other. And they're meant to be ashore at half six, seven. They don't get ashore till I 10. I think it's worth saying about the current again. We've said about it previously. When we say strong current we can't overemphasize that too much it, it's i mean it, the the uh the shipping have difficulty with that current it's not just a strong current it you you're you're swimming against the tide for want of a better word literally yeah. almost yeah i said it's not a tide they said it's not a tide it's a current and you're not swimming otherwise that was perfect Thanks, buddy. <laughs> so, the, so they land. Uh, now, the, the, the coastal Turkey, there's really no resistance in the first place. You might think, oh, well, what, what's the problem? Uh, but they've actually just dropped back the other side of the Mandero River to have a little look and think about it. Uh, they occupy the Fortin village and they're just about getting ready to advance. Uh, they're accompanied by a battery of 75 millimeter guns. They're excellent guns, Gary. You love the 75 millimeters. Uh, guns. Well, I think they're well respected generally, the 75mm, by anybody who's come into contact with them, with, you know, the possible exception of the people on the receiving end. Yeah, terrible. Well, fast firing, uh, good, good shells. Uh, about 17.30, uh, to you, half past five, Gary. Thanks. Uh, uh, they, they start to advance on the cemetery where that, where the, where we went, uh, we, and the lines are still there in the cemetery. It's fascinating. And towards the Arkani Mound, there's a, a gun battery there. Remember, we went to that one. It's a, just inland where there's the plastic guns and the real gun. For all these fabulous places to visit. Uh, now, they, they get. We should say the, the plastic guns were there because they made a film. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, and they, yeah. and they left the props there. It's That's a, the <laughs> Turkish way. Yes. <laughs> Do you tidy up this historic site after you've left? No, you just leave Just them. leave the guns. Which, actually, I'm quite pleased because they're nice plastic guns. Um, now, uh, as they move forward, they begin to meet more and more resistance. And at about 1800, an aerial reconnaissance... Uh, Six o'clock. <laughs> an aerial reconnaissance warns them that there's mass columns moving uh, from uh, behind the, the river and from Yenishur. Um and as a result, the French drop back and prepare the village of Kumkali for defence. So the usual thing, trenches, loopholes, bashed in walls, that kind of thing. Barbed wire put up a little bit, but they don't have much with them. The first counterattacks, when do they come in, Gary? Uh, 20.30, which is half past eight. Well, let, should we just go to leave it to the 24-hour clock and stop buggering ourselves? Yeah. Uh, so the, the, these the, three, three battalions of the Turkish 3rd Division smash home attacks. The attacks are really intense. There's counter-attacks, they're fighting tooth and nail, they break into the village, the French have to counter-attack. Um, to be honest, without the 75mm guns, they'd never have held it. And actually the fleet, the, the supporting French uh, ships and cruisers, uh, pre-dreadnoughts and cruisers, they fire blind into the area in front of where, they don't know what they're firing at, they just fire in front of the French positions. Um, and uh, and uh, however, next morning, they make it. And at this point, 
some of the Turks begin to surrender. This is probably because they're caught in the open and they know the French gun, naval guns are going to blast them to bits. But then it's a really confusing situation. This is a, uh, an account by Colonel Reif uh, of the headquarters Brigade Colonial. What, what does Colonel Reif have to say? The enemy began to wave flags and showed a wish to give themselves up. 80 Turkish soldiers approached unarmed and were conducted inside, inside our lines. Immediately afterwards, many more Turks, several hundred, arrived in succession, but refused to lay down their arms. A parley took place, and Captain Rockell, a very courageous officer, pushed into the middle of the Turks to persuade them to give up their rifles. This officer was surrounded and was not seen again. Others, jostling our men, succeeded in seizing and making off with two machine guns. Our men did not dare to open fire for fear of wounding their own comrades. And in my book, uh, Gallipoli, 1915, which is still available for purchase, I believe, Gary, uh, and I know you've got one. Um, I probably had to give it to you, but <laughs> and I know you haven't read it. Um, but uh, there's a quote from a great French soldier who's saying, well, I was expecting uh, you know, to be killed in action or possibly wounded. I wasn't expected to be sort of in the middle of a sort of football crowd and then suddenly, and it, it, it's um, a Velvet Underground song, but suddenly rough hands gripped his package. <laughs> it's a lovely French. And, he, and he, he suddenly picked up by a load of Turks and marched off, taking his rifle tape. And what's happening is some are surrendering but there's a crowd of men and some of them aren't surrendering and in the confusion it's not treachery it's just confusion um and uh the, 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 it uh, it goes it, this goes on later on another group about 500 turks do surrender it's the concentrated fire of the 75 millimeter guns and and the navy blasting them from the side the navy say, sail up on either side basically it's uh however the British landings aren't going so well, are they, at Helles, V Beach, W? It's all failing. They've got nowhere. And so Hamilton wants all the French infantry and artillery to join them at Helles. So this is, this, this is awful, really. And although the French have stabilised the situation, they then have to evacuate, uh, and which they do on the night of the 26th, and, and, and pull back. Now, the casualties... Uh, this is the, this is serious fighting. How many go? You've got. I've, I've written down the, the, the casualties. A little bit vague, but you you've got them here. Yeah. So the fighting uh, that the French have been engaged in thus far resulted in seven hundred and seventy-eight casualties, and the Turks uh, some one thousand seven hundred and thirty, uh, in addition to the loss of more than the five hundred prisoners that you've mentioned. So this. Now, I would also say, we mentioned it earlier, you know, the, the French contribution to Gallipoli was over 40,000 men. Uh, the uh, memorial, which is in the rather aptly named Morto Bay, contains uh, up to 15,000 dead French, uh, because you've got 3,236 individually marked graves, and being French, you have a number of ossuaries with thousands of unidentified dead. So I want to, to put that there now as a marker. This this is a serious contribution and they suffered serious loss. So what we're going to look at now is how did they suffer all these casualties? And that's what we're going to see. They're in serious fighting when they land. Uh, so ashore, they, wait, they, they, they land on the evening of 26th of April, the, fir, the French 1st Brigade Metropolitan Brigade landing. Now, here's one of my favourites. and uh, Landing at V-Beach, they take over V-Beach. V-Beach becomes the French core base. Uh, um, and amongst them landing is Private Cornelia Jean de Bruyne, 
now the French always the French foreign Fantastic legion. Fantastic French name. Yeah, and it's not real, of course, is it? Because it's French foreign legion, and they always change their names because it's they're, they're all bad types. And what was his real name? Dick Cooper. Dick Cooper. Has a certain uh, ring to it. It does have a certain name. Uh, you're going to read uh, a fantastic quote from... from I, I shall always think of you as Dick from now on. I shall always think of you as Cooper. We had no idea where the enemy was. It was pitch dark and raining in torrents. The first company was lost, and Captain Rousseau detailed me, with four or five other men, to go out in different directions to find them and lead them back to the battalion. I walked for about half an hour through the rain and darkness, stumbling over rocks and dead bodies, and at last, scrambling up a hill, I saw a dim silhouette at the top. I was glad to see any living human being and went right up to him and spoke in French. With a yell, the man dropped his rifle and fled, calling on Allah in Turkish. The best part of it was that I was so startled that I did the same thing. That is, I dropped my rifle and ran. Oh, hero. Heroes all. Heroes all. <laughs> a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fantastic question. Well, to be fair, I think I'll probably do the same. Well, it it's a natural a, response. A real shock to him. I would imagine, he talks about going up a hill. I would imagine that's the hill from Morto Bay up onto where yeah. the, the memorial is. That, yeah. That's probably where that is. I don't know. Now, the French are given uh, a sign to the right. This is perfect British. The position of honour in any line, I believe, uh, in military terms, is the position on the right. There's another reason why uh, Hamilton put the French on the right. What was that, Gary? Well, it would <laughs> it would have condemned them for the rest of the campaign to the very worst of the fire from the Asiatic batteries. And as the unseen at this point, horrors of the carriage dare ravine that lay right across their path. So not they're in a position of honour, but they get that thing. The honour is to get absolutely mullered for the rest of the campaign. And 
or what the British couldn't stand for one day so that the French had to land at Kumkale was then going to be for, yeah. for six months, ten months, eight months, the French fate. They'd have those batteries, Kumkale and all the way along the Asiatic uh, side of the Dardanelles, firing right into their right flank and actually their rear. And there's nothing worse than being fired up from the rear. And as a mutual friend of ours who shall remain nameless for possible legal reasons, uh, he would describe it as being malleted. Chris Carling. Never heard of him. Never. Uh, next to the French 29th Division. Uh, now, on the 27th of April, a sort of general advance begins. It, it's a, it's, it's a, an advance to contact, and they're just basically advancing up the peninsula, moving uh, across to uh, the uh, uh, just a, from just above S Beach, across to Gully Ravine, uh, moving up. But they're not making much progress, are they? Uh, they try again on 28th of April, and this is. Uh, this is uh, an ambitious manoeuvre. They're going to pivot on the right flank, which is where de Tot, where the uh, Abide, where the Turkish memorial is now. And they're going to pivot, uh, everyone moving up, uh, until they go through Krithia up to a, a, a mound called Yezi Tepid. Look at your map, you'll see. You don't really need to know. They were just going to pivot, and the French were meant to stand still. This is the first Battle of Krithia, which would commence at 0800 on the 28th of April. The French, though, were keen to get in on the act. They're still keen. And they, they, although they're meant to be pivoting on the French, they advance anyway. They start to push along uh, the, the uh, Kerev Spur. Now, uh, look, at, look at your map for this. Uh, and they, they manage an advance about 1,000 yards towards the Kerev's dare. Now, if you look at your uh, map of Gallipoli, I always say put your right hand in front of you. Uh, that's, uh, that's Helles. The Kerev's dare is the gap between your thumb and your forefinger. Uh, your forefinger is the Kerev spur. The, the gap between them is the Kerev's dare. That gives you a rough thing. But even simpler, look at a bloody map. Don't be lazy. At the end of the day, some Turkish reserves come up, and and there's often a thing because they counterattack, and the French fall back. And they often there's often talk in the British about the silly old French falling back. But actually, the 29th Division run away that day as well. They fall back, and they give up most of the ground. Uh, that, 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 that's come. And the Turks are beginning to build their forces up, aren't they? It's not just one battalion now, it's loads, loads more. How many is it by this time? Well, by this time it's about 21 battalions or roughly 17,000 men. That's a lot, isn't it? It is a lot. Uh, that's an equal, or if not more. Yeah, and that's at Hellas, so, you know, in a small area too. So, they're going to counterattack now. Enver, the Turkish war minister, wants them to attack straight away, but Liman von Sanders is afraid of the naval gunfire with bloody good reason. So on the first of May, uh, they attack. Two divisions attack on the right of the line, uh, twenty-two hundred, uh, mostly and most against the French, and they hit them. By this time, the colonial brigades come ashore and slotted into the line, uh, but they hadn't dug in properly. So, can you imagine it, Gary? tens of thousands almost of bloody Turks charging out of the night uh, determined soldiers attacking you at night you're not properly dug in you don't really know where you are what what's going to happen what would you do I'd run like hell yeah 
And that's what most of them do. It's not because they're uh, uh, Afri French African infantry. It's not because they're French. It's because it's a natural reaction to what's happening. It's also sensible. If you stay and fight, you'll die. If you fall back, you can counterattack when you know what the situation is. The French are a more mature military country than the British. The British stand and fight to the last man. They don't always, but that's the, what we like to think we're like. The French are more likely to assess the situation if it's hopeless to fall back and then counterattack. And let's give the Turkish some credit here. It was a vicious, well-executed attack. It was. Simple tactics, yep. but at night, the, the rush, the, the rush of determined troops, oh, it must have been terrifying. Now, so they fall back almost to Morto Bay, up to, up, up to, 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 you know, they, they almost reach Sed El Bar, they're supposed to. Uh, uh, I don't believe that, but they're, they're supposed to have got close to it. Um, what ha but then dawn comes. Oh, what did that mean? <laughs> was she the sort of catering woman? No, no, that was a different dawn. That's, uh, that was when you were working at TFL. Tea and biscuits. No, this is, this is a different dawn. This is morning. And what does morning mean for the uh, for the uh, Turkish troops? <laughs> the Royal Navy and the French Navy, of course, uh, would be able to support the French. And what they do is they, they blast the Turkish positions as they're trying to consolidate. And what happens? The French counterattack. And they take all the ground they'd lost. Uh, so that's good. 3rd of May, the fr and that night, uh, took, launch another ca uh, attack. And this time we've got a, a description from uh, 2nd Lieutenant Raymond Wheel of the 39th uh, Artillery Regiment. They've got 155mm guns, big big bangy things, I think you'd describe them as, Gary. And they're in the orchards on the outskirts of Sedel Bar Village. Those orchards are still there. Uh, go on, tell us what it was like. In the pitch dark, we immediately let go a furious barrage. The fuselage carried on at the same pitch. It was a dreadful, uninterrupted racket. We fired without a break, all out. I had to yell in the middle of the din to make myself heard. All the neighbouring batteries were firing without respite. The Turkish batteries replied. The Asiatic coast behind us sprayed us copiously with shells. That's demonstrating what we were talking about earlier. We were perpetually dazzled by the flashes so we couldn't see and we were deafened. Up to 1am it was a veritable furnace. The gunfire never stopped for a second. Now in the end this attack stopped. Uh, they, they don't break through this time. They're, 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 uh, I mean they break through in places but they're, they're, they're thrown back. And uh, what's happening here is it's a narrow front. The, the Allies have started to be in trenches. This is two days later. Every day that passes, the trench lines are getting deeper. The, the British and French trench lines and, of course, the Turkish trench lines. It's a bad situation for the Allies. Let, let's sum it up. Uh, let's go through the situation. You t Tell me, what state's the 29th Division in? Well, they're going to be totally exhausted but also demoralised. They've been ashore since the 25th of April. They've been fighting. They've been smashed to bits. They've been malleted. Uh, they are in bad state. R and D. How are they? What state are they in? Royal Naval Division. Well, they've been split up, and and you know, let's not forget they're completely inexperienced, and you know, you've mentioned it yourself. No artillery, so they're not that effective. French First Division. What are they? What state are they in? Well, they'd suffered severe casualties. They'd already called for desperately needed reinforcements by this stage. And where were they? Well. The French 2nd Division uh, wouldn't begin to arrive in Hellas and they were on, all of them were on the right of the line. The position of honour 
and they'd arrive on the 6th of May. So they're, they're, they're just on their way. So it's, this is not good. But despite it all, we've talked about this. We've done a whole podcast on this. He just, Hamilton feels he has to try before the Turkish dig more trench lines. And so we get the second battle of Krithia for three days, starting on the 6th of May. Three times they do it. They, they, the French would advance to Kerev's Dare, and then they would pivot on the Kerev's Dare now, not on the, uh, the, memor- uh, the, uh, the, the French positions at uh, where the B Day now is, the, the Turkish memorial. Uh, they pivot there while the British took Krithia and Yazi Tepe and then attacked Achi Baba and Tian Scones for, 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 you know, but that's a big problems. Still not enough artillery. No one knew where the Turkish lines were properly. They hadn't found them accurately. And what is this overall? Is it, is it? This is an advance to contact. Is that good? Again, no. It's the most difficult of battlefield manoeuvres. We've talked about that before. Um, <laughs> for, for the young, uh, listeners, I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, the Battle of Krithia is a bit like now that's what I call music. It just keeps going till it gets to number 125. It's, it's just repeating and repeating and repeating. It is. Now, um, it's because of the, the, the second Battle of Krithia is in essence three separate battles. Uh, but it's just called the Second Battle of Krithia. Now, um, how does it go? Well, it all depends on the French advancing. Of course, it depends on the French advancing to the Carrows Uh, Lieutenant. Henri Fuel saw the attack. And this is, this is a terrible account, really. Uh, tell me what Henry Fuel saw. They advanced as on exercise, our brave troops. No gaps in the ranks, punctuated by flashes of bayonets and blue glint of the rifles reflecting the rays of the midday sun. You would think they were on a training ground. But what is there to say? This wall of steel stops hurls itself at an obstacle that it can't breach, hesitates, immobile for an instant. Then, all the geometric lines fall apart, groups running right, left, thrown into confusion. All the while, Turkish machine guns rattling away, tearing at the air, ceaselessly firing into a wall of palpitating flesh. Horrible, isn't it? And uh, this is where the casualty did... What did you... What did you say? 15,000 possibly dead? 15,000 possibly, yeah. This is how you get to that figure. Uh, it, that wall of palpitating flesh. They're human beings being ripped apart by machine guns. And let's guns. emphasize that 15,000 dead. That's not casualties. That's dead. Now, uh, the, 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 they fail. Three times they, they, the, in all they take the three days and, uh, by now, it's obvious the French are entering a death trap, isn't it? Uh, you've described it perfectly in a sense before. In front of them, there's the Kerebs there. It's a valley with, you've, you've climbed the walls. Yeah. Is that steep, that wall of the? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember Colonel, uh, what's his name? Duddles. Yeah. D- Colonel Dudley Giles, uh, a distinguished Royal Military Policeman. Um, he didn't like it going up there. Well, he had to got be a fairly bro- <laughs> dislocated shoulder. I yeah, think. and he couldn't fall one way. And that the, the only way he could fall was down the cliff. And that, he had nobody to carry his water bottle. No, either, no, nobody. Soul. I'd like to mention Jeff Harrison, who, who was particularly good at helping Duddles during the whole of that. And, and they, they became great chums as a result of those experiences. And I believe they still correspond to this day. It's it's vertical, isn't it? It's a, and, and you, they say towering cliffs, but there's thirty or four. There's 30 or 40 feet of cliff yeah. and then very, very 
steep and it must be a hundred feet down in all and then a flat valley and then across in levels and at the other end there's a sort of a Y shape with a perfect for defence. So the French have to turn and go up the side of the Kerevs there where there's defence work after defence work by this time. Uh, the, uh, the Harico, the quadrilateral and other nameless ones. Uh, but all the time, all the time, what's firing to their side and right up their backsides, Gary? Well, I presume it's the Turkish batteries. One hopes so. So, hope it's not. Hope it's not the Royal Navy. <laughs> no, well, it could be. Um, and uh, it, it, the only, the only saving grace is that the French are quite safe, uh, short of shells. That's the only thing. Now, let's talk a bit about the conditions. We've had a whole podcast on the conditions. Uh, we're not flies, district corpses, but here I think. Let's look at a particularly French aspect of it. And the joke about it being French is, of course, it's not French. It's the French Foreign Legion. And we're going to go to Dick Cooper again, who is British. So I am now insulting the French. And it's actually a British person who's saying it. Now, I, what passes for a joke in the French Foreign Legion is um, it, it is actually just the same as the British Army humour, isn't it? Yeah. So we'll, we'll give him his nom de plume, Private Cornelius Jean de Bruyne. First Regiment de Marche. The jo- John the Bear. John the Bear, yeah. One of the greatest needs was cigarettes. No change there then. And after a battle, certain of us used to volunteer to creep out and search the dead Turks for tobacco, of which they seemed to have plenty. One night, I found a nice big packet of tobacco in the coat pocket of a dead Turk. On the way back to our lines, I rolled myself a cigarette, but at the first puff, I was nearly sick. God knows how long that Turk had lain out there, but the tobacco had become tainted by his decaying body and was putrid. I rolled about 20 cigarettes and distributed them to the men in my company, who were duly grateful, until they tried to smoke them. Our jokes were a bit on the gruesome side, but then so were the conditions in which we were living and dying. I just love that. The idea <laughs> there's this, this, this tobacco soaked in body juices. And he rolls them into tabs, tries one, doesn't like it, so he gives them to his mates. I just love it. That's that's military humour. Uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, the next quote is from Lieutenant Henri Fouil, uh, and it's also about the French Foreign Legion. In this case, it's this is gruesome beyond belief, Gary. Uh, I'm going to be watching how you say the uh, the delicious meal that they make. I'm just along the beach were buried the enemy corpses. They had been hurriedly buried just under the sand and pebbles. The crabs swarmed about them in their hundreds. If you knocked over one of the Turkish boots, their hideous living contents came scuttling out. Terrifying. The legionnaires quickly harvest this veritable larder to make delicious boulebay. We certainly didn't eat it, although they said it was delicious. So the crabs ate the corpses, and French Foreign Legion ate the crabs. I have to congrats. This, I'd forgotten how sophisticated you are. You're used to fine dining, whining and dining. And uh, French restaurants hold no terrors for you. I'm known as Gary Culture Bane. Well, amongst other things. <laughs> Several of the letters are the same. Um, now, uh, somehow... Uh, Hamilton and Hunter Weston convince themselves. Hunter Weston is commanding the British Eighth Corps, which is under. Uh, they're, they're the troop, the British troops at uh, Hellas. They're, they're, they're going to have another go. By now, it's trench warfare. And, and our, our General uh, Albert Damard, he's been recalled to France, 15th of May, and his replacement is Jean, Jean, General Henri Gourard. And he's a, he's a good 
good type as well. He gets on well with the British. And what we have now is the third Battle of Krithia, a general attack. And this time, the first and second French divisions would attack the Harico uh, Redoubt and then on to the Quadrilateral and the Ravine du Mont. Does that sound a bit ominous to you in any way? No, I don't speak French. Oh, that's all right then. So I'll take you there. <laughs> I'll show you why. That's where our good friend Roger Chapman lost his camera there trying to climb out there. It's quite tough in that area. So the French artillery pound the Harico. They really do. But the Turks respond in kind. Uh, and, and, and then it's the same story. What, what did we hear? The, 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 the rattle of machine guns, the, the rifle fire tearing into the French poilus, the, the French Tommies. Poilus is their, their word. It was a disaster. It's not their fault it was do you think it was possible to you've been there you've stood on the harico you've stood on the quadrilateral definitely on numerous occasions do you think it was possible to attack up that spur with the french the turkish firing at you from all bloody sides no frankly you you've got the carriage there uh, on the flank and i mean let's let's not forget now that the turkish defense system is is more mature than it had been in the earlier days you've got absolutely very little chance of success and because the French fail, uh, the, the Turks then feed down the trenches and take the, the British of the Royal Naval Division and then the Manchester, and they lose most of the ground they've got. Is that the French's fault? No, it's just war. It's just The French can't be blamed for failing in an impossible task. Uh, the French realised there are the losses, 4,500 British casualties, French 2,000 uh, casualties, uh, Turkish figures, well, they're, they're not accurate. I'm not, I'm not going to read that out. The French know they're in trouble. This is Captain Francois Charroux, and this is me. And uh, I say, uh, this is what I say. Theoretically, he seems to be British and posh. <laughs> Theoretically, our situation is untenable. I'd say that if we were on peacetime manoeuvres, the exercise umpires would have adjudicated that we were all dead. That is the logical consequence of our troops living in the crossfire of the Turkish batteries firing from Achibaba to our front and the Asiatic coast to our rear. It was just like being in Paris. We, oui, mon ami. Would a 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th and as you say 57th Battle of Crithia make any difference? Well this is what uh, Private Jean Lemoinery thinks. He's uh, 1st 175th Regiment and he puts it brilliantly doesn't it? We were afraid of being attacked, but believe me, we were even more afraid of attacking ourselves. In scarcely three months, my regiment has lost 1,700 men, and it isn't over yet. The British generals often trash, but actually Hunter West and Gurar come up with an alternative, and they're not going to, they can't, they haven't got the troops, they can't make a general advance. They're going to concentrate all their artillery and just take a little bit, bite off a chunk of the Turkish line. This is bite and hold, isn't it, Gary? Yeah. It's what, you know, so this is, uh, this is quite advanced in my view. Uh, who do you think they gave the honour of trying these new tactics out, just in case something went wrong? Um, oh, that'll be the French. Oh, you try it. 21st of June, they launch a concentrated attack, hammering at the Ravine de la Mort, uh, that's an offshoot of Kerov's Dare. We mentioned that before. And the Harico and Quadrilateral Redoubts are old friends. Will it work this time? They dominate the Kerov Spur. And it's a narrow front of 650 yards and it contained, uh, well, it's, it's just awful. Um, now what French uh, artillery do they deploy? Well, 
Seven batteries of 75mm guns. Well, this is out of the world. Uh, two batteries of 155mm howitzers. Trench mortars. Seven British howitzers loaned to help the attack. Uh, to shatter the Turkish defences in that 650 yards. Uh, they also, six more batteries of 75mm guns would fire into the rest of the Turkish lines they could reach just to... Uh, make them puzzled and to, just to embugger them. Uh, the French uh, long-range batteries, would also the pre-dreadnought Saint-Louis would fire. This is a bit... It worked out... At, well, well, you work it out. Your maths. I can't do that maths. I, I believe you can do this. Along in your, in your, yeah, you know, hang on. Uh, carried away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, it works out a gun or howitzer every 10 yards, Pete. Amazing. And uh, enough ammunition? Well... They expend over 30,000 shells, so it certainly suggests enough ammunition. And it's a crash bombardment too. It's quite modern. It's quite 1918 standing, although not the number of shells. It'd be millions in 1918. Uh, it, it, uh, they, they open the bombardment at 5.15, 0515, uh, and it lasts just 45 minutes. Six o'clock, the 176th Regiment charge the redoubts with alongside them on their right the 6th Colonial Regiment. They're going for the Ravine de Moor. Now the Haricots quickly overrun and this is Private Jean Lemonnier uh, giving a description of what it's like. This is horrible. The dead formed the parapets of the trench. At each turn there were smells that became more and more fetid, carried to us on the gentle breeze. Down the wall of the trench ran a reddish liquid where the maggots swam. If you looked a little harder, you realised that it had been a leg, an arm, a thigh, rotting away covered in green flies, which indiscriminately land on the dead flesh and then you. The more we went forward, the worse the stench became unbearable, and the more the bullets whistled past as the trench petered out. Heavy casualties, but it was a success. They do take the Harico. Uh, they don't keep the, uh, the, the Ravine de Mont. They don't get the quadrilateral. A two and a half thousand killed and wounded. That's where those people at the memorial come from, Gary. They're building up thousand upon thousand upon thousand. Uh, quadrilateral still in front of, we've been to the quadrilateral. It absolutely dominates that area of ground, doesn't it? It is more important than the Harico, I'm afraid. Uh, and uh, so they ha- the, the lessons are clear. That's the way forward. Uh, uh, 28th of June, the British try on the left uh, and take a, a large amount of ground on Gully Spur. We don't need that's a success. Uh, and then the French do it on the right. And on the 30th of June, they take the quadrilateral. It's a great moment. But on the same day, on the same day, Gurar's wounded by the crossfire coming over from the other side of the straits. That symbolises that although they've taken the quadrilateral, the French have just dug another one just a bit further up the spur. They've still got the bloody Kerovs there blocking their way. It's sodding hopeful. Who's his replacement for Gurar? Uh, General Maurice Bello. I think it's worth pointing out that uh, Gurar was badly injured. He lost an arm. He did. He comes back, though. He's on the Western Front in 1918. Uh, General Maurice Bayard, he, he's already at Hellas. He's, he's an old man. He's 73 years old. That's older than me. That's older than you, um, which is quite difficult. And uh, he's already there. He's commanding the French 2nd Division. So he's up to speed. He, he, he understands the state of the campaign. Now, at this point, Hunter Weston decides, well, clearly piecemeal attacks work. We'll, we'll attack in the centre to follow these attacks. The successes on the right, the French, and the left. 
the uh, British. Uh, this is the stupidest plan in the history of the world. It's the Battle of 12th, 13th of July. You could call it the 5th and 6th Battle of Crithia if you fancied, uh, but, or whatever you wanted to call it. It's, it's just awful. It's bad everywhere, and it's bad for the French on the right. Uh, Bob Arvin, 4.30. French lunge forward, 07.35. And amongst them is uh, Sergeant Darno Pomiro. He's 175th Regiment. Without exception, we leapt out an, at an athletic pace under a thin rain of bullets and a few shrapnel shells. We were advancing towards the second trench objective. The left got there a bit before me because I had a few metres further to go. Got there all the same. Didn't find any Turks. But at the base of the ravine, I saw at least 300 of them swarming about under terrible sustained fire from us. For my part, I fired eight rounds. I slaughtered four Turks, including an officer. I threw a grenade at a group of four who were creeping up to within 20 metres. And the trouble is, that sounds like it's going well, but just a bit later, he's knocked out by a stone from a grenade or something, a shell, or, you know, he's knocked out. And, 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 and what, what do you think happens? What happens when you take a position from the Turks? Well, they're going to counter-attack at some point, probably and, later in the day. And, and, and can you hold it? That's the question. And most of the games they don't hold. The British in these attacks lose 3,100 casualties. The French only, only, only lose another 840. But, but something happens now. What happens, Gary? Well, I think that the French by this stage have, have really reached the end of their tether in modern would, parlance. Would the word murd, mad, help in describing? No, I mean, they, they've really put themselves through it over the previous weeks. And they've got they've got nothing more to give, frankly. There's just two divisions. Where are they going to get the reinforcements from? They're grinding down. Uh, they've been battered. It, 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 it. And there's also something else happening. Uh, the French government's beginning to waver, isn't it? Now, this is this is the the focus of a, an excellent book by George Cassar, which I recommend you to buy. Uh, it's, I can't remember what it's called, sadly, but George Cassar. He's written two: one entirely political, and one uh, probably called the French at Gallipoli, which he's uh, got a, got a, a bit a bit more about it. Um, he, he goes into great detail. I'm just going to say that uh, the French thought of offering three divisions and going in on the Asiatic side. Joff, the commander in chief on the Western Front, he said, "Mad, mad, vaton coule," he said. Um, it's a good job you don't speak French. I hope none of you can speak French either. Um, uh, I need these for my offensives on the Western Front. Uh, and the will begins to die away. The Germans trigger trigger the, the, the set of situations uh, that leads to uh, Bulgaria coming into the war, attacking Serbia. Uh, the French are more interested in Serbia by this time. And the end result is that the Serbian, the, the, the campaign, Salonika campaign starts and the French 2nd Division leave the peninsula. There's just one division left and they move to live and let live, don't they? And you mentioned the symbol for us of this. Tell us again. It was in the last podcast, but tell us about the symbol of for us, that the well that symbolises live and let live. Yeah, thanks for telling me what it was, because I might not have remembered. I was worried. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when we went to the French sector last year, um, and it's still there, there is a well that was shared by both the French and the Turkish, and they took it in turns to visit it. 
uh, which, you know, I think is just remarkable, really. And it was still there. And it, that's the great thing about these things. You can go and visit it. Was, it. It's, it's on the flat plane. There was a queue Paris of Street. Turkish waiting to use it. <laughs> they did shoot at you, though. <laughs> Uh, so, so the French are now, uh, they're just live and let live. This is what they do on the Western Front. Not, they're a mature country. If there's no point, so they just sit there. They improve their conditions of living and they stay there. And, 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 and that's the end of it, really, for the French. They don't fight much anymore. Uh, we don't fight a lot. The French try and keep out of the diversionary attacks uh, when, when we're launching the August offensive uh, at Souvre and, and uh Anzac, sorry, I do apologise. I momentarily forgot where the other forties were. But uh, they're they they they're not going they're not going to get involved as much as they can, and and they just live and let live, improve and and live out. And evacuation becomes the only thing. They evacuate um, uh, gradually. The French want their artillery out. They want their last division back, the first division out. Um, and uh, the North African troops are gradually withdrawn. It's a gradual process throughout, through the last couple of months of the campaign. But they can't withdraw all of their artillery because that's invaluable to the remaining force. And as we well know, there are four French guns that are still there to this day. Yeah. That they are the big guns. They're fantastic, aren't they? To look at, they, they, it would be a sure sign we're going to evacuate. So, and we need them. We just need them. We haven't got enough guns or enough ammunition. So they they say, and that they they finally leave. The Colonial Brigade finally departs on the first of January, nineteen sixteen, and the, the Royal Naval Division shuffles across to take over the Kerivsdare sector. Uh, and that's the end of the campaign for the French. They move on, and it's the it's the Gallipoli. They call it the Dardanelles and Salonica Association. It still exists. Uh, they move to Salonica, and that becomes their their main thing. They fight there. I, I'm quite interested in the whole thing about uh, why the French pay no interest to to Gallipoli. They built a wonderful memorial uh, at. Uh, that stands above Malta Bay. It is, it's dramatic, isn't it? It is, and you can see it from a great distance uh, on the peninsula. I think, if I may, the, the French, they don't immediately forget Gallipoli, and uh, I'm going to quote Eleanor van Heiningen, who's a, a historian. I used to work with her. Yeah, she's a she's historian a at the Imperial War Museum. And uh, this, is, this is a direct quote. She says... Gallipoli was the subject of frank public debate and resentment in France. The French had clearly been under the command of the British in this disastrous campaign and so were quick to criticise its organisation, execution and cost. For a time, it was seen as a typical British incompetence and willingness to shed Allies' blood. Well, I'm not sure about the willingness to... You know, I'd have to agree with all of that, uh, in a sense, because it's all true, isn't it? We're so, I mean, we give them the worst jobs. We give them the worst job in the Navy, the Bouvet sinking, the Suffren. They're in that second line. We give them the position of honour on the right. We let them test out our tactics. We, we, we get, we, they're given the worst job. At, they are badly treated by the British, and they suffer dreadfully. Uh the command issue is largely their own fault. Uh, I, I think uh, the majority of the troops were British, so they, they were going to command that. By the arrangements, the Allied arrangements before the war, the French should have been in charge of the naval forces. However, the Royal Navy doesn't take kindly to being under other people's command. I suspect that's at the root of it. And the French were, may have had an inkling it was going to be a disaster and perhaps want, uh, getting their excuses in early. So that's the... Uh, 
uh, uh, the French just aren't that interested. I think French attention is diverted by the Western Front, don't you? I just think that is the main event for them in the First World War. Their country has been invaded. A huge part of it has been taken. Uh, the biggest industrial region, region's been grabbed. They're, they're, mar- they're tens, nearly 100 miles into France. Uh, whoops, I'm not sure about that. Yeah, and whilst the losses in Gallipoli are terrible, and they are terrible, 15,000, it pales into insignificance to the pain that they're suffering on the Western Front. The losses are fascinating because I, I, I can't... I, I know Matt McLaughlin... Matt McLaughlin. Thank you. Or Nat. Is it Nat or is it Matt? Uh, anyway, Matt, as Matt did some research, he, he tried to pin down these figures. Other people, the French figures are strange. You count the numbers in those ossuaries, and there's sort of 12,500 in the ossuaries. Just in the ossuaries, yeah. And then there's the cemetery in front of you, and then there's the bouvet. 600, 600 dead. 600 on the bouvet. So I'm not sure where, I'm not, I can't quite work out the French losses. What I do, I, I see 12,000 dead a lot. Uh, 27,000 casualties. They both seem a bit low. Uh, but I can't put my finger on exactly how many. 15,000, I also see 15,000. 12 to 15,000 dead is not uncommon estimate. What I do know, and this is, it's not a race, that is more than the French, uh, uh, it's, sorry, it's more than the uh, New Zealanders and Anzacs, the, the Anzacs in total, and Australians, sorry, put together. Uh, their, their total losses are more like about 10,000. Now, it's not a race. They're, 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 the suffering of the uh, Anzacs is, is, is well documented. But all we want, we're, not, we're not in any way demeaning that or, or saying that isn't as painful as it was. What we are saying is please do remember the French please, who suffered as much, uh, if not more, no, as much, um, and... Uh, in a campaign that was not really their business. It's a politician's campaign, a real politician's campaign, isn't it? Yeah. What has it got to do with the French? French politicians, that's what it's got to do. They've got their eye on Syria and keeping their beady eyes on what the British are up to. On that high note, Peter, I'd like to say thank you and I look forward to the next one. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?